find your seat with your parents or with an adult. And we're going to get started. Titus chapter 2 will be actually in Titus 1 and 2 this morning. <laughs> and we're going to spend the next several weeks in Titus talking about generations. And so I thought this was very important for us to address, not just because of our demographic where we are, not just because of what type of church we are or our age makeup, but in general, in our country, the, the lack of intergenerational interaction has led us down a very bleak path. You look around our, church, our, our, around our country, and, and more times than not, we have a preconceived notion of how someone's going to act based on their age. Now, here's the problem. We have created that stereotype by not teaching those younger than us how they're supposed to behave. And then we've also propitiated, we've, 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 we've uh, perpetuated that, that same idea that the younger generation is failures by not living the way that we should live. And so the generations older than us look down and say, there's no hope. And so here the Bible talks very clearly about how we can reconcile this. And so we're going to look at that just for a few minutes today in Titus chapter 1 and 2. And so first I want you to turn to Titus ch chapter 2 and we're going to read verse 1 and then we'll jump down to verse number 11. Verse 1 says this, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting sound doctrine. We'll read verse 2 as well. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Jump down to verse number 11. The Bible continues and says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I thank you so much for your salvation. I thank you for the blessed hope that only comes because of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the change that you have made in my life and that you've made in your people, even as we sit here and reckon uh, uh, remember what you've done, Lord. I pray that you just help us to see that you have blessed us, that you have changed us. Help us to be the example for those younger and to be the encouragement for those older. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we're looking at a place called Crete. Now, if you've never heard of Crete before, Crete had a, had a, a I almost said testimony. Testimony is not the right word. Had a reputation that stuck with it. And so the first thing I want us to think about is this, and we're going to talk about Crete, and I want you to turn back to Titus chapter 1, and the, our first thought is this this morning, how did we get so broken? How did we get so broken? Have you caught yourself looking around and seeing the things that happened in our world and thinking, how on earth did we get here? Have you thought that? I'm going to tell you, I've thought that this week. I've read stories this week and thought, how on earth are we at this point in history where we have allowed so much distance between what God has called us to be and what we really are? And I'm going to tell you, the big picture, so, so here's the spoiler, the big picture is the church has not been primarily preoccupied with the first thing that we were called to do. 
That's, that's what it boils down to. But I'm going to show you how we can change that. What we're going to do by intergenerational relationships and how we can interact with each other to make a difference in our world today and tomorrow. So how do we get so broken? First thing we've got to do is understand Crete. I want you to understand that it was known for its wickedness. I've got a quote that's coming up here from a historian named Polybius. It's a nice name, right? Don't you wish your parents had named you Polybius? Polybius was a Greek historian from the era when this passage was written. So he had firsthand experience with the island of Crete. Now, if you don't understand, Crete was a small island, and they were extremely preoccupied with having things and stuff and money. Bring that quote up for me, guys. Yep, you're way behind. Next. There we go. Here's, what, here's the first quote. This is Polybius, ancient Greek historian. This is around 200 B.C. We're still before Christ. This is what the historian is saying about Crete. It says, money is so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but in the highest degree creditable. Think about that. Not only was money necessary. In other words, it's mandatory. you got to have money. But not only that. If you want to have credit towards your name, if you want to be seen as a good person, you better have a lot of it. That was the, what he's saying is the highest level of uh, credit or, or the highest level of gain or the highest level of, of, of um, status you can have is by having a lot of money. He goes on further. He says, in fact, the, uh, greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain, whatever. Now, here's why I put this quote up there. It could be said about America. This quote could be about America, and nobody would know the difference. It, now, we, we probably would have to update the vernacular. We'd figure out, uh, uh, we don't use these words anymore. But what he's saying here is money was number one, to the point where there was no means for getting money that was off limits. Think about it. Our only um, test too often for whether something should be done or should not be done is does it make uh, financial sense, right? The, even for us personally, and it's, it leaks over into the Christian life, which is the scary part. Rather than testing something to see whether God has called us to do it or desires for us to do it or has equipped us to do it, we test something and say, can I afford it? Why is money number one? Why is the financial side of it the first thing? And you know what? We had to overcome this as a church uh, in, in, in some real ways recently. We started talking, and Joyce was in the office with me. It was Leah and Joyce and I, and we were talking about our mission trip to Panama, and we got the bottom line, and I said, let's calculate that again. That seems like a lot. She said, yeah, no, this is right. And just recently, we sat down again, and, and Joyce said, we still need $10,000. And I said, well, you know what? God has provided, and he's going to continue to provide. But if we had been uh, not focused on what God wanted us to do, but more focused on, well, can we do this? We might have been tempted to say, well, let's do something different because I think this might be what God wants us to do, but we just can't afford it yet. Let me tell you something. As, as a pastor, um, as, a, as a family member, as a friend, I've seen too many people say, I can't afford to do what God wants me to do right now, so I'm going to save up for it and do it later. You know when later comes? Never. Later never comes. Never does it come a time where you have enough money where you say, I can do what God wants me to do now. Because if it's about money, it wasn't about his providence to begin with. 
And if it's not about his providence, how, on the, how in the world are you ever going to please him if you can't trust him to take care of you doing what he called you to do? And so here we see we're way too much like Crete. Not only do we see here that Crete was a, uh, known for its wickedness, we go on further. I want you to see its values were all backwards. We've got another quote that will come up here from a guy named Cicero. Now Cicero was a, uh, was a politician basically in his day and he was a philosopher. Around 75 BC, here's what he said about Crete. Listen to this. The rules of life are so contradictory that the Cretes regard robbery as honorable. So this goes on further. Remember the last guy said that there is nothing you could do to gain money that would not be okay. Right? That's basically what he said. Any way you can get money, it's okay to get money. In fact, it goes further, and here's, here's the mindset behind it. Robbery is honorable because at least you didn't kill anybody. But now, hang on a second. I, I would, I'm going to tell you something. If you go home and Google honorable theft, you're going to find some stories in our country right now that talk about how somebody, and, and here's the way they spin it. Well, we just didn't have money for food, and so we went and stole it. Well, good job stealing that food. I'm so glad you did. Wrong. Theft is never honorable. The ends never justify the means. Here's what we have to understand. If we are going to be what God calls us to be, we've got to have the faith that says, regardless of what it looks like in my mind or what I can figure out, I'm going to trust him to take care of me. I'm not going to fix it myself by doing something that's wicked. In fact, you've got to be careful as we go through this life. So many times we're so tempted to choose the lesser of two evils. When faced with the lesser of two evils, choose neither. Don't choose evil. Don't do wrong. There is no end that will justify the means to get to that end. So here's what we have to understand. Crete was broken. The third thing I want you to see about Crete is that money was king. Now I want you to understand that those two first points really pointed back to that. But you've got to understand when your king becomes money, all wickedness becomes okay. The Bible says it this way. The love of money is the root of all evil. So here we understand that money was king in Crete. Could we say that about America? Money's king. Money's king here. It really is. In fact, that's a saying that we have. Cash is king. Have you ever heard that before? Multiple times. And sadly, I think we believe it. I think that we believe it. And we do whatever we can to serve our king, which is cash. And it leads us to all kinds of wickedness. <coughs> cash was king. Philippians 3.19, the Bible says this. Actually, verse 18 and 19 says, For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Listen to this. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. Let me tell you something. He's describing America. Our end will be destruction if our God continues to be what we can consume. Having enough stuff, having enough fun, I read an article recently talking about how America, it's gone from money, power, and respect to now the greatest good that you can have is to be happy. Let me tell you something. God is far less concerned with your happiness than he is with his plan. Now, let me tell you, if you will follow God's plan, there's a joy that, that happiness could never rival. A true joy that lasts with life that, that no good news could ever surpass if you truly follow Christ. But God is not concerned with you being happy every moment of your life. Or else he wouldn't say things like uh, that we are called to fellowship in his suffering. Doesn't sound like a happy verse. He wouldn't say that we are called to suffer for his sake. 
Those are not just happy verses. He wouldn't say, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, for the trying of your faith works patience. He's not concerned that you're happy every second. He's concerned that you follow him and find true joy. But our world would tell you, you've got to be happy all the time. Only do fun things. Only do what makes you happy. Let me tell you something. What makes you happy doesn't usually make you happy. Think about that. What makes you happy won't ultimately make you happy. In fact, if you want to give a good uh, case study of that, look at guys like Heath Ledger, a, a millionaire, an actor. He was starring in a, in a film that was going to be a blockbuster, and he took his own life because there wasn't enough happiness to keep being happy. Think about Robin Williams. Robin Williams so similar. He's a comedian. He spent his life making people happy, and you know what he did in the end? He took his own life. Happiness will always run out, but joy is eternal. There's a major difference. And so here we see we are Crete. It's terrifying. It really is. We are Crete. Now here, I'm not going to leave you there. I could dismiss now and say next week we'll talk about how we can fix it. That might, that might be too cruel, though. But now I want to talk about what we're supposed to be. Here's what we are as a nation, and sometimes too often as a church, and as an individual, here's what we are, is we're Cretans. Not a good thing. But here's what we're supposed to be. The point, second point is this. What should we be like? Turn to Titus chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse number 11. The Bible says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. First thing is this. <clears throat> here's how we're supposed to be. Defined by grace defined by grace. Think about that. Are you defined by grace? Do you live in grace? Do you share the grace of God? That's what we're called to be. For by his grace, we have been saved. When we share his love, his grace abounds to those that are around us. If there's one word that could define the Christian, it should be grace. Because grace encapsulates love. It encapsulates mercy. It encapsulates forgiveness. All of these things are part of grace, but none of them are grace by themselves. All of these things are grace. We should live grace. Now, I know some of you are concerned. I left you a couple blanks. If you're OCD like me, I'll go back and give you the blanks. Um, so looking at rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers have led us astray. That's number B. The first one is this. They destroy whole families. It tells us how we got there, right? The Bible right there, he says they destroy whole families. Now I know in the, in the, the, the word that he uses here in verse number, um, verse number 10 is that uh, rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. That word upsetting means to utterly destroy, to take apart, to demolish. You look around our world, we have been told lies that money will fulfill, that stuff is enough, that you go out and do what you can to be who you want to be, and then you're going to be fulfilled. Those lies have ruined the youth of our country, have ruined the fathers in our country, have ruined the families of our country to where people truly believe if they're happy, that's the greatest good. See how that becomes a problem. I'm not happy with my wife anymore, so I'm going to leave my wife and kids and go find another. Destroyed a family. Well, I'm not happy with being pregnant anymore, so I'm going to abort this child and end its life because they're not worth 
my happiness. It's destroying whole families. Even families where the mother and the father are together, but their whole pursuit is money and stuff and this world, those kids watch and say, it's all about money and stuff. I just got to get money and stuff. Let me tell you something. We all know as adults, when you pursue money and stuff, it's empty. It's foolish. It's unhappy. But kids just think that that must be all of life. Man, if I can't have enough stuff, if I can't have enough money, it's not even worth it. We see so many child and teenage suicides as a result of, I'm getting everything I want, but I'm still not happy, so I'm just going to end it. Some of the saddest things you can see. You know why that happened? We taught them things we shouldn't have taught them. We taught them things that never should have been taught. We taught them things that were based on our own profits. So many times I've met parents that would say this, my kid's going to be a pro athlete so they can buy me a house someday. That's the goal? Some wood on a foundation is the goal for your kids? The Bible says that your kids are like arrows to the archer, that we're supposed to be sending them out into the world to fulfill the the mission that God's called them to do, not to stand here and build us a house. Listen, if your kids are rich and can build you a house, great, I'm glad they can. But if that's your goal for your kids, you're selling them way short. You're selling them way short. Kids, I want you to understand, God has a purpose for each and every one of you. He has a goal for you to be used in his plan. And he has made you and equipped you perfectly to fulfill that goal. Don't just be a moneymaker. Don't just be a stuff getter. Because money goes away. Stuff burns up. Joy doesn't. Be a follower of Christ. And so here, now that I've filled in those blanks, I'm sorry, I took longer than I meant to. But we're supposed to be defined by grace. How does that look? What does that look like if we're going to be defined by grace? You know, some of those things are clearly outlined in the Bible. One of those would be love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let me tell you something. Our world is the easiest world to witness in since I've been born, at least. You want to know why? When there's no light at all and you light a match, Seems really bright, doesn't it? Seems extremely bright. Like it hurts your eyes that you light a match in pitch black. Our world is so dark that you just show just a little love. The light of Jesus shines so bright that people can't help but react to it. It's as simple as that. I, I, I'm telling you, I've had opportunities to witness over the past year by doing things as simple as holding a door for someone as they walk through the door. Well, why'd you do that? Well, I just wanted to help you out. Well, nobody else does that. Well, the Lord told me to love my neighbor more than myself. Now, did that person get saved on the spot? No, but they thought about there's something different. I coach basketball, not because I love being at the Y six hours a week and watching kids play basketball, but because it gives me an opportunity to show kids that may not be loved in other situations that adults can love me and treat me right because they love me. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to be anything special. Love can just be love, and that's because Jesus Christ. This world, all you got to do is love just a little bit. Be a little kind. Say a kind word to somebody, and it makes a difference in our world. I challenge you to do that. That's what it looks like to be defined by grace. Second thing that we should be is saved. 
Listen, this is a big one. You should be saved. And I say, you say, well, that's such, a, that's such an old school term for that. Well, listen, if the Bible used it, I'm going to use it. He said, salvation was brought by Jesus Christ. He came to die on the cross for our sins. Last week we celebrated his resurrection, but there would be no resurrection if he did not first die on the cross and experience the, the weight of your sin and the pain of your sin. And he did that so you could be forgiven. If you haven't accepted Jesus, today's the day to do that. And it's as simple as ABC. Admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and confess that he's the only way to be saved. Kids, let me tell you something. Today is the day to know your ABCs. Simple as that. Admit that you're a sinner. We're all messed up. We've all taken a cookie when we weren't supposed to. We've all said no to mom when we were supposed to clean our room. We're all sinners. Believe that Jesus came and he died on the cross for your sin. And the final is this. This is important. Confess or admit that he's the only hope that you've got. He's the only way to forgive your sins. He's the only way to salvation. Let me tell you something. No matter how much good you do the rest of your life, all of the good in the world can't erase the bad that you've done. All of the right and all of the good and all of the hard work and all of the coming to church and all of the witnessing to your friends, none of that is valuable if you don't first have Jesus in your heart. Because you can't do enough good to erase your sin. Only Jesus could pay for your sin. So, that's the so we should be defined by grace. We should be saved. He goes on further. We should be looking to Jesus who has redeemed us. So when we look to him, here's what we're going to do. Verse number 13, I want to read from there, and we'll go on down. Uh, uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says this, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Listen, when we will look to Jesus... When we will realize we're redeemed by Jesus, he gives us some things. The first thing is this. He gives us the ability to look at, verse number 12, deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Let me tell you something. If we could deny ungodliness and worldly desires without Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ died in vain. So, so let me put it this way. Let's say... You gave me a call in the week, and you said, listen, I've been convicted. I had a court case, and I have been sentenced to death um, unless I pay $1,000. So either someone has to die, or i got to pay $1,000. Pastor, will you give one of your daughters to die for my conviction? Would I ever give my daughter? I, now, I might dig up the $1,000, because if there was another way besides my child... It wouldn't be my child. Now, I am a human, flawed father. Our Heavenly Father is perfect in all of His ways. We just sang about it. If there was any other way to save you from your sin, Jesus wouldn't have died. If you could live good, Jesus wouldn't have died. If you could have just tried hard enough to be a Christian, Jesus wouldn't have died. So here when he says that we're going to deny ungodliness, that we're going to deny all these wicked worldly desires, it's only through Jesus Christ. And it's no coincidence that immediately after this he says, seeking the redemption of Jesus Christ, the blessed hope of Jesus Christ, 
Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how hope wasn't this pie-in-the-sky idea. It's not I hope that I'm a Christian or I hope I get that for my birthday or I hope that my team wins. This hope is the word that we get from the same word that was used for the scarlet cord. When Rahab was there and they said, hang this scarlet cord from your window, here's what they said. This is your only hope. If you go outside of this room, if your family leaves this room, you will die. Let me tell you something. Hope is very specific. It's very pointed. It's very narrow. There's only one way. And Jesus Christ is that only one way. He's the only way to salvation. He's the only way to be changed. But beyond that, he is the only way that you will ever be different than the sinful, wicked person that you are. Let me tell you something. I've been saved for over 20 years. I've been a pastor for over 10 years. The moment I step out from behind Jesus Christ, you will see how wicked and flawed that I am because I'm the same wicked sinner I've always been without him. The only thing that's changed me, the only thing that's made me any different is Jesus Christ. The Bible says it this way, that they, we are to be clothed in the garments that were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Listen, if I'm not holding that garment, if I'm not walking in Jesus Christ, I'll disappoint you. I will. That explains something. You say, well, how is it that Christians mess up sometimes? We, we like to set that coat on the side sometimes. Say, God, I, I love you and thank you for salvation, but I'm going to do it my way right now. We choose. We choose to do wrong. You want to know how we choose to do wrong? We stop walking in Jesus Christ. The moment that you step out from behind Jesus Christ, you're vulnerable. Paul said it this way, the devil, Satan, is a wicked, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I'm going to tell you a secret. You can't beat Satan. You can't. You never will. You've never once. Your record against Satan is oh and a million. He's won every time. It's been a blowout. But Jesus' record against Satan is a million and oh. He's never lost. He's undefeated. Why would we ever fight that fight then? You want to know what it's called? Pride. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. We're going to be saved. By his redemption, by his blood, we're to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Listen to what he says. We're called to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Now catch this phrase. In the midst of this generation, of this wicked world. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that when we stay clothed in Jesus Christ, and we live different than the world, and we're in the world. Paul said it this way, I am in the world, but not of the world. I'm there, but I'm different. The difference can't be ignored. Remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Tom brought that egg up here, and he said, this egg tastes better with salt, and he poured the salt next to it. It didn't get salty. He poured the salt in front of it. It didn't get salty. Until that salt came in contact with the egg, the salt made no difference. You want to know something? If you're not rubbing shoulders with unbelievers, don't care how good you're acting, you're not showing the grace of God. You're not showing the love of God. You want to know why I'm at the Y six hours a week? Because I get to get people a little salty. I do. People come and talk to me and say, why, why are you here? You have no kids on this team. I'm just a little crazy for one thing, but also because my church allows me to. That's the first thing I say. My church loves our community and allows me to be here makes a difference makes a difference 
Let me tell you something. You may not be a basketball coach. You may not be in sports at all. But there are areas of your life that you should be rubbing shoulders with people around you so you can get them a little salty. You want to know how you do that? Here's what he says. Let's read it again. Live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the midst of this wicked world. Say, I can't do it. You're right, you can't. Hide behind Jesus and get out there and win people. It's as simple as that. There is no other answer. As long as I've been a pastor, and as many years more that I will be, there will be no other special way to do it. I stay in Jesus, and I rub shoulders with those that need him. How am I going to give Jesus if I'm not walking with him? How am I going to show love if I'm not living in his love? Let me tell you something. We need to make a difference in our world. And you're only going to do it by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're only going to do it by living the way that he's called you to live in his power. So here's the thing. How do we get there? That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be defined by grace. We're supposed to be saved. We're supposed to, it's supposed to be inclusive. We're supposed to be reaching all men. But how do we get there? First thing is this. Titus chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. First is this. The older must teach the younger, catch this, with pure teaching. We get wrapped up in two words there sometimes and think that this is supposed to be a church thing. Sound doctrine means, oh, that's Pastor John's job. He's teaching sound doctrine. You want to know what sound doctrine means? Undefiled teaching. Simple as that. It has no ulterior motive. It has no desire to turn anyone for own personal gain. It's teaching for the sake of teaching because I love you. And it's right teaching. I didn't put my own thoughts into it. I didn't put my own opinion into it. It's what God has taught me to teach you. That's sound doctrine. Now, when I put it that way, that the older are supposed to teach the younger with pure teaching, who gets off the hook? It's like I told the kids. There's always someone younger than you, and there's always someone older than you. you should, uh, and I had, a, I had a wise pastor once tell me, there should be someone in your life that you're close to that's in the same stage of life, of life as you. There should be someone in your life that's close to you that's in a stage lower life than you. So, so if you're a young married, there should be someone that's a college student that you're working with. And there should be someone in the, in, uh, that you're close to that's in a stage of life past you. So why is that important? The one that's past you is teaching you. The one that it, it, you're encouraging them. The one that's below you is encouraging you and you're teaching them. The one that's in the same stage of life, you're just encouraging and walking together. So why is that so important? The Bible has told us that's where you're going to get strength. That's where you're going to grow. That's where you're going to be taught. That's where you're going to increase in what God's called you to be. Is He's put us here for a reason. Let me tell you something. God has ordained you just as much as he's ordained me to be in this church. God's called me to be the pastor here, but he's called you to be the members here. He's called you to be the people here. He has a purpose for you just as much as he has a purpose for me. This is not a one-man show, not a one-man deal. This is all of us walking together, striving for the gospel. That's what we're called to do. Every generation. So as you look around, our tendency is to dis dismiss. Well, they're too much younger than me. I, they, don't, they, won't, they don't want to listen to me. And here's the way that we say that maybe. Well, they're going to think I'm boring. Or I don't know how to relate. Or they just have too much energy. Now, let me tell you, I'm not advocating that you should take my daughters and spend a whole weekend with them. You'll be tired. I'm, I'm, I'm just perpetually tired. It's a state of being now. 
But a kind word. Let me tell you something. One of, the, one of the, my favorite relationships in our whole church is Caitlin and Brother Russ. Now, here's the relationship. It's, it's not fake. If you know Caitlin, she's not going to sugarcoat anything. She's not going to pretend she is what she is. And some days, Caitlin comes into the office and Russ is there, and she just waves and goes and sits down. But other days, like the day we walked into Chick-fil-A and Russ and Pat were sitting there eating lunch, Caitlin went running over to Russ and gave him a hug. Now, let me tell you something. It didn't get a, it, Russ didn't make any money off that hug. Russ didn't get any different change of life. It didn't change his health. It didn't change his family situation. But let me tell you something. I know for a fact that I encouraged Russ. And you know, Caitlin didn't get to learn some giant monumental lesson from giving him a hug. But you know what she knows? Is that Russ loves her. You want to you understand something? Don't go into church thinking, what can I get out of this? Don't go into relationships saying, what does this person have to give me or to show me or to teach me? Don't be a consumer. We're called to be a family. And you know what? Caitlin may not have a whole lot to offer right now, but someday she will. Here's what I want you to understand. No matter what your age is, no matter what generation you're a part of, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me tell you something. Within our church, some of the ones that are least likely to know Christ are the young ones. And those are my kids. Those are your kids. We want them to come to know Christ. Want to know how we do that? Be defined by grace. Love them. Cherish them. Show them that you care about them. Now listen, I understand. They do crazy things. They do. They do things that I thought were impossible. How they can spill some of the things they spill is just astounding to me. I've been, a, I've been a dad for over 10 years, and I'm still shocked at the ways that they can make messes. And at this point, the speed with which they can do it. But you know what? We could teach. We could be kind. And when kids know that you love them, guess what? They stay in church. Because it's not just a place that I come to sit and listen. It's a family that loves me. It's different. It's different. It says a few things here. The oldest must teach the younger with pure teaching. But not only that, it goes on. He says a few things about that teaching. He says it should be with authority, refusing to be ignored. Look at no verse number 15 of Titus 2. It says, these things speak and exhort and improve and uh, reprove with all authority. Listen to this. Let no one disregard you. And you say, what, what things are we teaching? He points all the way back to the first verse where he says, sound doctrine. Pure teaching, what God's taught you, the things that I've taught you, Timothy, that I've taught you, Titus, I mean, these are what I want you to go on and teach. Continue teaching. So you see how this progression happens. The older teaches the younger. Now that younger is older to somebody else, and they're going to go on and teach the younger. And you know what we all get? It's, it's like the greatest pyramid scheme ever. As every generation younger learns and grows, we're all encouraged seeing how they've changed. Now you want to know the, the, the opposite of that? You don't teach the generation below you. You don't teach the younger. And they learn from somebody else. And you got the opposite of encouragement. You look around our country, that's where we are. We haven't, we haven't been faithful to teach the younger generation. And now when we expect to be encouraged by them, there is no encouragement. You say, man, that seems so hopeless. It's not. Start today. Start today. Let me ask you this. What is the point at which Christ is no longer interested in saving and changing somebody? Is it 50, 60, 15? He's not interested anymore when you, when you turn 25? 
if you've done too much sin. That's what it is. If you've been too wicked and you've fallen too far and you've been too wrong and you're just beyond, right? That's, that's the point. We all know the answer. There is no point where there is no hope. As long as you're here and you're breathing, there is hope for you to turn to Jesus Christ. Now look around your neighborhood, your sphere of influence. Are there some younger ones? Teach them with pure teaching. Are there some older ones? Encourage them by walking right. Let me tell you something. This is not impossible, but it's only possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's only possible by the way that he's told us to do it. He goes on further here. He gives us three ways. Here's how we do it. This is logistics. Speak it. That's the first one. Speak these things. Simply means this, to tell it or to preach it. That's the first step. We should all be there teaching those around us about Jesus Christ and his love. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on further. He says exhort. That word exhort means to strongly encourage or urge to do something. We are to be exhorting one another, encouraging one another that Jesus is the right way. That's what we're called to do. And he goes on to the last one. He says this, reprove. Reprove means to correct or reprimand. We're called to speak and exhort and reprove. We are supposed to be teaching. Then we're supposed to be urging. Then we're supposed to be correcting. That's what we're called to do. Now, does that mean we come in and just, we just need a whole set of rules, and if we all follow the rules, everybody's going to be happy? No. It's still done by grace, knowing that we're saved, and it's all by Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. Last thing is this. The younger must encourage the older. Listen to this. I think this is so encouraging. Titus chapter 2, verse number 6 through 8, the Bible says this. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, now listen kids, this is to you, every, every kid, I want to see your eyes, this is, what, this is where the passage is talking about you. Urge the young men and women, I'm going to add women too, little girls, this is for you too. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. What's an example? Kids, what do you think? What's an example? What's it mean to be an example? Huh? It shows something. So if I was going to do an example, I would say math example. Two plus two equals Oh, it took you longer than I wanted it to. All right, 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's an example. It says you're supposed to be an example of good works. All right, think about yesterday. Just yesterday, we'll take a small sample size. Were you an example of good works yesterday? Uh-oh, we're in trouble. So what are we supposed to do about that? How can we be an example of good works? What do we need? Jesus. You're right. You, sh you should have said it louder. When you got it right, you should say it. Unlike the slow four that you gave me earlier. <laughs> yes. If you're going to be an example of good works, Jesus is the answer to that. Now he goes on further. He says, be an example of good works. But he goes on and he says, show yourself to be an example of good, uh, good deeds with purity and doctrine. That means teaching each other what's right. He goes on further. Dignified. That means don't act crazy. Right? Can we handle that, kids? I don't know. Some of you have got to act crazy. I get it. I see too many parents. No, they can't handle that. They need Jesus. You're right. They can't handle it. <laughs> Sound in speech. All right. That means only saying good things. Now, it's not fair. A couple of these live in my house, so I have insider information. But I can tell you from personal experience, kids too often say hurtful things. Where do you think they learn that? Now, li listen, some of it's sin nature, 
But some of it comes straight from us. You guys are called, though, to be sound in speech, to say good things. Now listen to what this does. It says, so that the opponent, who do you think the opponent is? Yell it out. Your brother is not your opponent. No, <laughs> that's not the opponent. <laughs> no, the big opponent. <laughs> Try number two. Who's the opponent? Who's the big opponent? Satan. Thank you, adults. I didn't want to hear mom or dad next. All right. <laughs> Satan is the opponent. Listen to what it happens. If you live right, Satan, the opponent, is put to shame, having nothing bad to say about him. You want to know what that does? Two things that happen when you live as young people the way that you've been taught to live. It encourages those who are older than you, and it puts the devil to shame because he has nothing bad to say about you. You want to know what that does in our world? It changes it. I, and I mean this in a very real, and I mean this in a very serious way. You, as kids, have more potential to change our world than anybody else sitting here. You got more time. You have more, more chance to encourage and to teach those that are younger than you. But you can only do it through Jesus Christ. I think half of them are in a sugar coma. That's my problem. They ate 20 pieces of candy, and now they're, like, shaking. But you're supposed to walk in Jesus. Here's what it all comes down to, and this is for adults and kids alike. We must all lean on Jesus. We want to make a difference. We must all lean on Jesus. Look at verse number 11 and verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, for, by the grace, uh, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now let's look down at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearance, uh, appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession you want to know how you can change personally jesus you want to know how our country is going to change jesus you want to know how you can be a better example for those below you jesus you want to know how you can be a better encouragement to those that are older than you still jesus every single time jesus christ Walking in Him, living in Him. So our question was this today. Very simply, does it matter how I interact with other generations? Here's our answer. Emphatically, yes. Intergenerational relationships, teaching, and encouragement are crucial to pleasing the Lord and changing our world. You want to really see a difference in America? It's going to be Jesus, but you have a part to play in it. You need to live for Jesus so that those walking behind you will live for Jesus, so that those who are older than you will be encouraged to live for Jesus. It's living for Jesus every day. We can be a part of it. Now, I'm excited. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dive into each individual generation and spend some time talking about what it means for us. How can we be the generation that we've been called to be?